Well, it's that time of year again, a month before Christmas and for me it's a time that lasts all the way till Christmas, the time to feel guilty about not writing Christmas cards. Uh, Do people still write Christmas cards? Cindy, yes, Pat, okay, good, there's some there. It seems to me it's not as many people are doing it as 10 years ago. Uh, I still get a few Christmas cards uh, and it seems to me there are three sorts of Christmas cards. There's the simple, efficient, quick card, Dear David and family, from so-and-so. They're nice. Uh, Then there's the card that has the the pro forma family catch-up letter inside with all the news that's happened over the past year. Uh, What the kids have been up to, what renovations were done on the house, where they went on holidays. And that's all very interesting, but but I do wonder if Facebook has made those sorts of letters largely redundant these days. But the cards that I love to get um, have the encouraging, thoughtful message. It doesn't have to be an essay, but even just a few sentences is lovely. Uh, A few sentences that gets to the heart of what's important, that rejoices in our friendship. They're the best sort, aren't they? I love to receive them but they're also difficult to write, aren't they? Especially if you've got 15 or 20 cards that you want to write to to say something that's on point and thoughtful and uh, rejoices in your relationship. I think we could learn some lessons from how Paul writes to the Philippians. He was a prodigious letter writer. Uh, We have 13 of them in our New Testament, but you can be sure that he wrote a whole lot more. Uh, All the churches he started, he would have been writing letters a lot. He he can't just hop on a plane and go to that church uh, he planted. Uh, So we've got Philippians and uh, these first 11 verses of chapter 1 are a great example of the sorts of things that uh, the very best of our Christmas cards might include. Depth of feeling, warm encouragement and real joy, isn't there? He's writing these words with a huge grin on his face as he thinks about the Philippians. And there's one phrase in the middle that gets to the heart of the relationship. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. There in verse 5, partnership in the gospel. Partnership, fellowship, it's the koinonia word. Maybe you've heard that thrown around through the 70s and 80s. Every Christian fellowship group was called a koinonia group. But that's the word that's used for fellowship or partnership. A shared connection of relationship or purpose. And even though Paul's in Rome, he's under house arrest. They're in Philippi, they're a thousand kilometres away in Greece, but they're connected, they're family, they're partners. And what they share is the most precious thing of all. They share God's grace. You see down there in the end of verse 7, there's a related word to partnership and it says that they're sharers in God's grace. Uh, and there's a history to this partnership that makes it even stronger, that, that, that makes the connection and the feelings even stronger. Uh, Paul says they've been partners from the first day until now. You see, it's been ten years since Paul first arrived in Philippi. Uh, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. Paul, Silas and Luke had only been in Philippi for a short period of time. They arrived, there's no synagogue to visit, but they found some God-fearing, uh, some God-fearers who were meeting down by the river. 
And, and before long, Lydia and her household had believed in Jesus and been baptised. They'd had their first church plant meeting in uh, Lydia's home. But it wasn't long before Paul and Silas had ended up on the wrong side of an angry mob and the magistrates had ordered them beaten and thrown in prison. But even that prison sentence had turned out well. There'd been an earthquake, the prison doors flew open but the prisoners didn't escape and then the jailer had become Christian as well and he and his household were baptised. That was all in Philippi. And so by the time Paul and Silas and Luke had left, there was this little church left behind and Paul says that they'd been partners with him from that time until now, ten years. Chapter 4 tells us that they'd been supporting him financially. And so Paul remembers them with joy. Why? They were partners in the Gospel. We're going to spend a few minutes thinking about what that might involve. So the first thing we see is that uh, partners in the gospel are committed to each other. That's fairly obvious, isn't it? Paul is pretty transparent. Verse 4, he remembers them with joy. Verse 7, he has them in his heart. Uh, this is more than just a job. Uh, they're more than just a target or uh, a clientele that he has to do work on or fulfil commitments towards. Uh, he's committed to them. Uh, The people excite him. He has them in his heart. In verse 8, he he calls on God to back back him up in in terms of the truthfulness of what he's saying. God knows how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's not just individuals within that group either. People that he has things in common with or that he's connected with particularly well. Uh, or who he finds easy to talk to. Verse 3, he says he prays for all of them. Verse 7, he says it's right for him to feel joyful about all of them. Verse 8, he longs for all of them. This is the whole church that he is feeling this joy about. So let me ask you, what about you? What do you miss about church when you're not here? Is it a few selected individuals? Or is it the whole family? Those who are different from you as well as those that you have things in common with. Are you committed to all of God's people? Do you miss all of God's people? Well, that was Paul. The commitment went the other way as well. The Philippians were committed to Paul. They shared themselves with him. That's part of what Paul means by partnership in the Gospel. Chapter 4, he thanks them for their financial gifts. Their commitment to Paul had hands and feet. It was real, it was not just good wishes. It wasn't the odd prayer for God's blessing thrown in every now and then whenever they thought of it. They stuck by him. Verse 7 says, They shared in God's grace with Paul when he was in chains and when he was defending and confirming the Gospel. So whether he was on the sidelines or whether he was out in the middle, their their commitment to him was the same. They were consistent. They weren't fair-weather friends. That's something that we can learn from. A sad fact is that missionaries' financial support often drops off when they're home on furlough. Perhaps because their supporters 
don't think that they're doing any real work while they're home and therefore they don't need to be supported. But of course the reality is their expenses are often greater when they're home than when they're on the field. So it's not being partners in the Gospel if you're not supporting Gospel workers all the time through thick and thin. It's not like that with the Philippians and Paul. Through good times and bad they were committed to him. Second thing we see, partners in the gospel, uh, partners in the gospel are committed to their master, not just to each other, they're committed to Jesus. You can see it right there in verse 1. Paul describes himself and Timothy as servants. Uh, what does it mean to be a servant of Jesus? Well, for Paul it meant doing whatever Jesus wanted him to do. At the moment he was in prison and he's full of joy. Most of the things that Paul ended up doing he wouldn't have chosen if he wasn't a servant of Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians, he he describes what his life is like as a standard year in the life of Paul and his point is to compare what he is like as a true servant compared to the false teachers. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 12 he says about the false teachers, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I'm more of a servant. I've worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, bandits, my own countrymen, from Gentiles, in the city, in danger in the country, in the sea, in danger from false brothers. I've laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else I face daily, the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's a servant. Following Jesus like that means denying self, letting someone else call the shots, letting Jesus be in charge. None of us likes to do that, do we? We like to make the decisions, we like to set the course. But for Paul, from the moment Jesus confronted him, his life was turned on its head and any plans Paul may have had for his future suddenly seemed unimportant. Career, friends, family, possessions, education... Self-improvement no longer mattered. And the only thing that mattered was serving his master. He'd been dazzled by Jesus. Jesus had given his life for Paul and now Paul was giving his life for Jesus. And Paul makes that claim while chained between two Roman soldiers. It was Caesar who demanded complete loyalty demanded the adoration and even worship of his citizens at the threat of death. And yet for Paul, it's not Caesar who is boss, it's Jesus who is boss, who is Lord. It's not your Prime Minister who ultimately calls the shots. It's not your employer or your bank manager or even your husband or wife. It's only Jesus. He's not just your saviour, he's your Lord. That's what it means to be a servant of Jesus. 
That's what it means to be a partner in the gospel. Paul knows what a life of service will look like. Look at what he prays for the Philippians, the sorts of things that a servant of Jesus will make a priority. Down in verse 9 he prays for the Philippians, This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best. So firstly he prays that the Philippians would love each other uh, with a love that will grow. Love is what sets Christians apart. The miracle of how people who are so different and come from such different places uh, can love and accept and put each other first. But it's not easy, it's not natural and so Paul prays for it. It's a prayer that love would grow. Sometimes the better you know someone, the harder it is to love them. Isn't that true? Those annoying habits that you used to overlook, well now they drive you crazy. And so what Paul is praying for is that as time goes by, love would grow. That the better you get to know each other, the more you will love. That your shared history would lead to a deeper love, will be a foundation for a stronger relationship rather than a whole series of annoyances that cause love to fade. But notice it's not just feelings and emotions. And can I just say at this point, sometimes people say love in the Bible is a command, it's not a feeling. I don't know how you can read Philippians and think that Paul is steely-eyed, determined to put the Philippians first but has no feelings for them. Love is feelings, so, you know, as well. (laughs) I'm commanded to love them, not like them. Well, I don't see that in the Bible anywhere either. Back to love. It's not just feelings and emotions. It's not blind love. Notice Paul's praying for directed love. Love that has a goal. The second part of the verse 9 says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you'll be able to discern what's best. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? Love plus being able to discern what's best. Love that's combined with knowledge and insight. Uh, That's what will be most effective in relationships. Sometimes there's no question that you love someone, it's just you're not sure how to show that love, to know what's best. How can you best show love to a drug addict? How do you best show love to someone who's struggling with depression or someone who's making bad relationship decisions or someone who's struggling to raise their kids? That's where we need knowledge and insight to go with the love that's growing. A knowledge of God's purposes. A knowledge of what is best for that person. So that you can show love in the the most directed, best way possible. So what is it that's best for people? Well Paul prays it down in verse 11. Love for people wants them to become like Jesus. Love wants them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's the goal as we love people within our church here. 
that we be encouraging the fruit of righteousness to develop in them. As we pray for them, as we guide them, sometimes as we rebuke them, as we encourage them, as we correct and train, that God's fruit of righteousness will be growing in them. That's what we want love to be doing until we all reach unity in the faith and become mature. That's the language of Ephesians 4 there. And do you notice what the ultimate goal of love is, where it all ends? It's that we'll all be kept secure until the return of Jesus. Verse 10 says, So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure, you all may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. It's not one person loves so that he be kept pure. It's that we all love each other so that we can all be kept pure and blameless until Jesus returns. That's what it's about. That's the target, that we all make it to the end. That's the goal, that we all keep following Jesus until he comes back. That no one slip, no one fall away. The creed of the US Army Rangers is that no man is left behind. That should be our motto, isn't it? No man left behind. Let me be blunt here. Over the last year or so, there's maybe, I can think off the top of my head, half a dozen people who've been among us and have just sort of drifted. I don't know if anyone's sort of kept up with them. But Paul is saying here that the goal of love is that we all be kept pure and blameless until the day of Christ. We've got a mutual commitment to be looking after each other may not be an easy phone call to make or text or coffee date but love says we should do it. That we all be kept pure and blameless until the day of Christ. It's targeted love Paul's praying for. That's what he wants to develop in the Philippians but at the same time it's not just our effort, God is at work as well and that's what gives Paul every confidence that the Philippians will actually make it to the end, pure and blameless. You see verse 6? Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confident about the future because he's seen the evidence already. He's seen what God has begun in the Philippians. He's forgiven them, he's made them a new people, He's saved them, he's filled them with the fruit of righteousness. Uh, They're being filled with the fruit of righteousness and so he's confident that God is going to finish the job. What's the basis for Paul's confidence? Is it the Philippians? Well, no. That's just as well, isn't it? Most of us are not good at seeing things through. Whether it's saving that house deposit or losing those kilos or finishing that project restoring that table or knitting that jumper. We've all probably got half a dozen unfinished projects around. If we can't stick at those things, what chance have we got of sticking with Jesus on our own? It's just as well that God is good at seeing things through. That's who he is. That's what he does. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's not the Alpha and the Epsilon. He doesn't just make, take you halfway through. He takes you from the start to the finish. 
He's faithful to his promises. If he says something Monday, he'll keep it till Sunday. Paul's confidence that these Christians will see it through to the end is based on God rather than us, than them. From beginning to end, partners in the Gospel are committed to each other, to Christ, they serve him, they serve each other and they're growing in the fruit of righteousness and they're holding, working to hold each other secure until he returns. The third thing we see about partners in the Gospel in these opening verses is that they're committed to the task. They're committed to the task. When you're committed to the Master, it's natural that you're committed to the message of the Master. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it changed everything. It changed them and they want to see that change others as well. And so Paul's rejoicing that their commitment has been seen in the long haul. Verse 5, he's praying with joy because their partnership has been from the first day until now. Uh, Since the day they first accepted the message until now, when Paul writes the letter, they've been working with Paul in the cause of the Gospel. They've been living the Gospel and spreading it and strengthening it. When they first became Christians, they were partners in the Gospel. Life was just amazing when they first became Christians. They didn't let inexperience or immaturity or a lack of knowledge stand in the way. They had great news to tell people and they couldn't wait to tell them. Are you as excited about the Gospel today as when you first became a Christian? That excitement, that partnership continues until the day Paul writes the letter, from the first day until now, he says. They're partners. Paul might be in Rome, they're in Philippi, they're partners. Uh, They're committed to each other, to their master, they're committed to the task. Let me finish by asking you which of those three are you having trouble with? Maybe it's being committed to other Christians. Maybe you've just got this sort of slight connection. It doesn't take much for you to miss uh, church. It doesn't take much for you to not pray for your brothers and sisters here. Perhaps you've been hardened to the needs and the ministries of those around us, uh, around you, and become too focused on your own affairs. How well are you supporting gospel work? Are you praying for people? If this is a struggle, then pray Paul's prayer for yourself that your love might abound in knowledge and depth of insight. Pray that God would work in you a love and a concern for the people you partner with. Or maybe it's being committed to Jesus that's a problem. Maybe that language of being a servant is just slightly uncomfortable for you. Like most, you're busy making your own decisions and Jesus seems to have little say in your life. He's saviour, but if you're honest, he's not really Lord. In fact, if you were honest, most people would struggle to see any difference between you and your non-Christian neighbours or workmates. Well, if that's you, then Paul's prayer is also for you. It's a prayer that encourages you to fix your eyes on Jesus' return. He wants his partners in the Gospel to be pure and blameless until Jesus returns. Is that what you long for? to see the return of Jesus, to be found worthy on that day. 
start living now for him as his servant. Or thirdly, maybe it's being committed to the task that's a problem for you. Maybe the gospel used to excite you, but you're just tired. Uh, People think Christians are intolerant and arrogant and society's changed and, you know, it's just easier to hang out with Christians all the time. Uh, We just seem to be getting so much flack out there in society. Well, if that's you, look to the Philippians. They were partners with Paul from the first day until now. Uh, There was a consistency and a perseverance and a long-sufferingness in their faithfulness to the message. Look to Jesus. Look to God who began a good work in you and expect confidently that he'll carry it on to completion. Look forward to the day of Christ, to being presented pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for these words. We thank you for the joy in them. We thank you for the relationship. We thank you for the Jesus focus. We pray Paul's prayer for ourselves, that you would make our love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we would be able to discern what's best and that we might be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. To your glory and praise. Amen.